Let's pray together. Father, thanks that you have, you have acted before us. You have initiated. Uh, you've spoken. That's why we open your word together. That's why we sing these songs. That's why we confess and pray uh, to you. God, you are the one who first loved us while we were still your enemies. Um, God, I pray that even as we read through 1 Kings 20 this morning and try to learn more about who you are and who we are um, in this text, that we would understand that we, we were enemies until you stepped in. And so, God, where I speak my own words, I pray they would fall away quickly and be forgotten. But where I say your word after you, God, move uh, in the hearts and minds of your people uh, to, to teach us, convict us, encourage us where we need it. Make us more like your son, we pray in his name. Amen. Was anyone here seen Dunkirk yet? The number one movie uh, in America for the last couple weekends. Um, I went to see it this past week. It is intense. It is everything that uh, you think it might be, um, but lives, lives up to the hype. It is a true story of British, French, Belgian forces, uh, 400,000 troops in all trapped on the coast of France by, by the German army. And for eight days, troops on the ground, in the air, uh, just pummeled these 400,000 troops while they tried to escape. And I won't give away the ending here because it's worth seeing yourself, but it is an amazing story. And there are lots of reasons to go see a film like Dunkirk. Christopher Nolan is great. He's one of my favorites. Um, Hans Zimmer delivers a, a moving and anxiety-filling uh, score. Um, it's, the acting is intimate. It's just a, the story itself. The history is fascinating. But I was struck by one author's take uh, on, the, on the power of this story. One of my favorite authors, James K. Smith. Um, always, he's always working to understand how we're put together as humans, uh, how our hearts work. And here's what he wrote about the film. So I have no interest in the cult of war, but movies like Dunkirk occasion profound doubts about my own lack of courage. It's the ubiquitous ordinariness of these soldiers that gets me every time. Carpet salesmen and pipe fitters who answer a horrific call. Would I? Is there courage and fortitude and sacrifice deep down in this leisured, coddled soul? Could my comrades count on me? There's something about war, something about battle, about a fight like we're going to see in our text this morning and like what's depicted in Dunkirk that, that forces that kind of self-reflection, of in, introspection. In fact, it reveals who people really are, kind of at the core, what we are and are not willing to fight for. And our story this morning in First Kings is a story about battle. And it's here for more than just a history lesson, right? Just like every historical account in Scripture it's meant to reveal something about the main characters. It's going to teach us something about them and about ourselves. And we used that grid uh, a couple weeks ago when we looked at the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Right? We asked the questions, what does this story tell us about God? What does this story tell us about the other characters in the story? And then what does it tell us about ourselves? And so that's a, it's a simple structure, but that's what we're doing this morning. We're going to read through the story and then answer those questions. What are we learning about God here? And then how can we, because we're, right, we're not so different from the world of First Kings uh, as much as we'd like to think we are, advanced uh, and advanced people, we're not so different. What can we learn about ourselves 
here too. So if you brought a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Kings chapter 20. It won't, the text won't be all up on the screen all Sunday. So if you have a Bible, you'll want it in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, either uh, print or in, on a mobile device, we do have Bibles back on that table. Uh, you are free to go get one now or just take it home with you. Those are there for you to take. So uh, 1 Kings chapter 20, we've been in the middle of a series called With Us for most of the summer. Uh, and we've spent most of our time with God's prophet Elijah. And Elijah has been, a, he's been busy, hasn't he? Um, started a drought, raised a widow's son from the dead, defeated the prophets of Baal, ended the drought, ran for his life, and eventually found himself in a cave, right? Where God is with him in the whisper, working in slow ways that can be hard to see. That's where we left Elijah last week, as God has been working through his prophet uh, with, his, with his people, Israel. And Elijah's not left the story yet. He will be back uh, in coming weeks, but he's nowhere to be found in our text this week. Actually, our story begins with a guy named Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. Syria is just to the north of Israel. There should be a map up here for you. The Assyrian Empire, which is that huge green section, maybe a little hard to see, uh, the Assyrian Empire uh, is growing in power, is moving to dominate the land. And Ben-Hadad wants nothing to do with the Assyrian Empire, and so he comes south to Samaria. He invades Israel. He moves into the capital city where our old friend, King Ahab, lives. And he brings a whole posse of 32 other kings with him. It's a whole alliance that is moving to dominate the area. Each would have had their own army. This is a, this is a huge force to be reckoned with, Ben-Hadad and his alliance. And in verse 1, it says they surround Samaria, they besiege it to start a war. And ben, Ben-Hadad sends messengers to Ahab with this, with this message. He says, your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and children also are mine. Now, you may have met Ben-Hadad, Ben-Hadad in school. He is the He's the one who said to you, meet, meet me tomorrow at the bike racks, all right? I'm going to punch you in the face. I'm going to take your lunch money. Uh, I'm going to go through your locker. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to date your girlfriend. He is the bully of this story. Ben-Hadad moves in and says, I'm going to take what is yours. He's that guy. And Ahab says, look, sounds good. Uh, don't hit me, right? Uh, here are my keys. Here's my money. Here's my girlfriend's phone number. Whatever. He just gives it all away. And verse four, verse 4, he says, As you say, my Lord, O King, I am yours and all that I have. Ahab is not interested, uh, even as he's been kind of the big, big bad king in our story so far, he's not interested in being the hero here as he encounters Ben-Hadad, but he is, he is a good politician here. He knows his back is against the wall. He doesn't want any part of a fight with this huge army. He's just hoping to appease Ben-Hadad uh, he hopes that what Ben-Hadad really wants is for Israel to be his vassal state, which really means that Israel could remain its own kingdom, just pay a financial tribute to Ben-Hadad. So Ahab says, yes, all, all I have is yours, but please, please don't hurt me, basically. But Ben-Hadad is not sa- satisfied. He wants more than just the, uh, than just the membership fee to be part of his kingdom. Once he sees Ahab has a weak will, he wants it all. He goes after everything 
He comes back and actually says, listen, all that stuff that I kind of theoretically want to be mine, I actually am going to come back tomorrow and take all of it. I'm going to send my servants. They're going to walk through your palace. All the things that you love, I'm going to take as my own. And that does the trick for Ahab. Now, now he's, he's up. He's ready to fight. He resists now that his stuff is in jeopardy. So he pulls the elders of the city together. He calls his advisory board to himself, says, this is what Ben-Hadad has said. Here are his demands. And in verse 7, they all agree Ben-Hadad has gone too far. They say, well, listen, say no to the second thing. Don't let him take all your things. But say yes to the first one. It's okay. We're okay being a vassal state. But don't let him touch your stuff. So that's what Ahab does. He says, we will serve you, but you can't come in here and take whatever you want. And so Ben-Hadad tries one more threat. Look at verse 10, if you're following along. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. Which is a, a little bit of a confusing way of saying, each of my soldiers will leave with a handful of Samaria's rubble. That's all that will be left. If you don't do what I say, I'm going to turn your capital city into ruin." just shoved Ahab into the lockers, right? It's on. We're going to fight. Now, Ahab, he has his own trash-talking game via messengers that he sends. Verse 11, he says, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. Which is great. This is just great. This is classic trash talk back and forth. He says, Don't talk to me like you know me, right? The fight is not over. Don't count your chickens before your, your eggs hatch. By the time the message gets to Ben-Hadad in verse 20, right, they're not text messaging this back and forth. Right? They're messengers going back and forth. By the time it gets to him, he is, we're told in verse 20 that he's, he is uh, drinking in a tent with his, with his buddies, right? He has three sheets to the wind. He is gone. Nevertheless, Ben-Hadad, uh, in his drunken state, he staggers up and he says, take your positions and let's fight. Prepare for battle. Now, let's pause here. As we listen to this story so far, if you think to yourself, there's something that's missing, you're, you're right. What is it? What's missing from our story so far? Yahweh, God, right? War reveals who people are at the core, and it's telling what Ahab fights for and how he does it. He has consulted himself. He has consulted his elders, his messengers, Really, anyone and everyone but God himself, the God of his people. He doesn't get fired up about anything but keeping people's grubby hands off of his possessions, off of his kingdom. He is in it for number one, and it's not like we didn't already know that, right? We know that King Ahab is a bad dude. He's an evil king. When you put him up against other, the other good kings, which, which there aren't many, in Israel, but when you put him up against the good ones, like King David, who for all his warts, all of his blunders, is, is understood to be a good king, we really see it in Ahab. Listen, David was a young boy. Before he was even a king, he goes to fight Goliath, not, not because he thinks that he's bigger, faster, or stronger, or that he has what it takes to defeat this enemy giant. He does it because he knows that God will fight his battles with him. He knows that to defy Israel is to defy God himself, Yahweh. 
God's reputation is at stake. When enemy, when foreign nations come up to fight against Israel, God's people, David, a good king, knows that they're picking a fight not just with the king, but with God himself. That's a good king. Ahab is fine with giving Israel away. God's prized possession. Ahab has no problem with that going under the leadership of an, and dominion of another king. Just don't touch my stuff, thanks. This battle says so much about who Ahab is. What lights a fire under him is telling. Which makes what comes next absolutely shocking as we follow through the story. Look at verse 13. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, which so far we've, we've heard, Thus says Ben-Hadad. Now, thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Look at this army. There are 32 other kings with Ben-Hadad. This alliance is too great for you. Have you seen this multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. God says, well, if you won't come to me, I'll come to you. And listen, in no way does Ahab deserve this help. He has made this bed for himself. He has invited the calamity onto, the, onto this nation. Every move that he has made has been godless to this point. And yet God still intervenes. Because he wants Ahab to know that he is the Lord. It's the refrain we see throughout this story. So that you shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. So the battle plan is set for Ahab through an unnamed prophet. We don't know, we don't get who this prophet is, but he has come as a grace to Ahab. God says to send the servants of the governors of the districts first. There's 232 servants, which, which might sound like... These are nobodies, right? These are just, you know, God setting it up to, to, make it look, uh, to, to make it look impossible. But really, these are probably more like special forces, Navy SEALs, Green Berets. These are the best of the best, the elite fighting units who work security for the leaders of Israel. God says, send them first, and then the rest of the troops, 7,000 in number, will follow. And I love this interchange between God and Ahab, verse 14. Then Ahab said, who shall begin the battle? And God answered, you. <laughs> You're going to start this fight, and I'm going to finish it, starting today. So Ahab gets everyone ready, sends them out. Uh, the, the 232 go first. It's about noon, uh, which would be an, an unusual time to send a surprise attack. It's the middle of the day. Uh, broad daylight. Sort of a worse time is the best time, because no one would see it coming sort of deal here. Plus, it helps that Ben-Hadad is three sheets to the wind. <laughs> he's, already, he's already called the after party. He's celebrating as if, as if the battle is over in verse 16. We're told he's totally drunk, and I love this. Either he's so confused or he's just a terrible military leader. But here's, here's the brilliant order that he gives to his people. If, if the servants are coming for peace, take them alive, which sounds like a terrible idea given these are, you know, the Navy SEALs. But if they're coming for war, then uh, take them alive, right? He just says, take them alive, which is, a, it's not a great look. Israel doesn't make the same mistake. They come out swinging. And soon the Syrian army is retreating. They know they've been defeated. 
just as God promised it would happen. Ben-Hadad, however, he manages to escape. He makes, makes his way out. But before Ahab can even celebrate this, the victory of this battle, the prophet of God warns him again. He says he's going to be back next year, even stronger. He'll be back in the spring. God again intervenes to help Ahab here. We're told back in Ben-Hadad's headquarters, they're debriefing the loss, they're brainstorming why things went so bad. They have dismissed the fact that Ben-Hadad is drunk. No, that can't be it. That can't be why we lost. It's got to be because we fought Israel in, in the hill country, which is where, of course, Yahweh is strongest. Let's draw them out into the, into the plains and the valleys. We can beat them there. That's where they're weak. This is a common thinking at the time that gods and goddesses had they had a home base. They had a place where they had a home field advantage, right? These gods are good here, but not here. Um, it's cold in Boston, so we struggle there. Whatever. I mean, it's, they sort of had these home field advantages. It's the way they thought about it. Of course, they were wrong. <laughs> Syria comes again against Ahab. Full numbers again, and again is routed. We're told for seven days they encamped, they encamped opposite one another, right? And like, this intense staring contest for seven days, waiting to fight. And then on the seventh day, they engage in battle. Israel strikes down 100,000 men in one day. God rescues Ahab again. Twice. The king who murdered prophets, who encouraged pagan worship for God's people, the type of worship that involved prostitution, who allowed and perhaps even practiced himself child sacrifice. God rescues this king twice. Ahab is about as far from God as you could possibly get. And yet God is pursuing him anyway. God is still saying to Ahab, I want you to know that I am God. I'm doing this so that you will know that I am the Lord. Listen, sometimes we can approach the Old Testament, we can, we can, we can think that, well, uh, you know, there's this Old Testament God who's really harsh, and he judges, he's full of wrath, some of those things are true, we'll get there, but lots of folks who don't like the Bible point to the Old Testament and say God seems angry and violent and impatient, but Ahab's story, in fact, proves the opposite. If anything, you could make a strong case from this story that God is too merciful. One commentator named Peter Lightheart, he's been really helpful for me. He puts it this way. It's a little longer quote, but it'll be on the screen, so stay with it. So the impression we get from First and Second Kings is not that God is a stingy disciplinarian with an anger problem. That's a common view, isn't, is it not? If anything, the God of 1 and 2 Kings is irresponsibly indulgent towards his people, a God who does not seem to realize that he cannot run the world without a dose of law and order. By the time Judah is sent into Babylonian exile in 2 Kings 25, a long ways from now, we are not saying, my, what a harsh God. If we read attentively, we're saying, it's about time. What took so long? The offense is not that God is angry with the innocent. The offense is of God's mercy 
the offense of Yahweh's unearthly patience and with the irascible and unresponsive. That's it. He's almost too merciful towards his people. What does this, what does this battle reveal about God, about who he is? It, it reveals a lot of different things, but what we're focusing on this morning is this. You can never exhaust God's mercy. You can never exhaust his mercy. After everything Ahab has done and will continue to do, he has not exhausted God's mercy. He is, God is still chasing after Ahab so that he will know that, that Yahweh is God. In a sense, there's a battle taking place underneath this battle scene. I mean, on the one hand, there's a very real battle. This is, this is history, right? The Syrian army is real. God deals with them. But really, the battle in this story is for Ahab's heart. He's wooing Ahab back to himself. He's bending over backwards in his mercy and patience with this guy. And when Ahab shows just the slightest bit of obedience, God blesses him immensely, disproportionately. He, give, he gives him victory. When he does what God tells him to do, God blesses him in order that Ahab will turn to him so that Ahab will know that he is God. That is the real battle of this story. And it's the real battle in our stories too. God is pursuing you like this, even if you are hostile to him or more likely just indifferent to him. Living without reference to God. It's one of Ahab's greatest blunders as we read throughout this story. He just keeps doing his own thing for himself. And yet God continues to be merciful to him, and God's mercy is still like this. Remember, the quick, a quick definition of mercy is that you don't receive what you do deserve. And usually, in, in a context, of, we're talking about judgment, right? You do deserve judgment, you deserve punishment, what's coming to you, and, you and, and it's withheld. You don't get it. Grace, on the other hand, grace is receiving a gift, something freely that you, that you don't deserve. It's a difference between mercy and grace. Both are actually on display here in this text. And I don't know about you, but me standing here on this stage, and all of us sitting here with breath, are acts of God's mercy towards us. Ahab does not deserve God's patient mercy, and yet he gets it anyway. He even gets victory. And I wish this were the end of Ahab's story, that right here, Ahab says, yeah, yes, God, I do know that you are Yahweh, the one true God, that he turns and repents, but that's not the way that the story continues. God's mercy is not the only thing revealed here in this text. In verse 30, we see that Ben-Hadad did not escape this time. He's trapped, actually, by Israel. He hides in a nearby city, surrounded by Ahab's army, and his last play is... With, his, with those with him, they sort of feign this repentance. Let's act like we're sorry. Maybe we'll get mercy from Ahab. So he takes off his royal guard, puts on sackcloth and, and rope, 
as a, as a symbol of remorse, repentance even, sends messengers to Ahab. And again, Ahab acts without reference to God. He makes a move for political power here instead of checking in like he should have been doing all along the way. God, what do you want me to do here? Instead, he, he does his own thing, which in, in this case, obedience to God would have been to kill Ben-Hadad. <laughs> it's what he was supposed to do. Destroy him. Destroy them. And we may, we may question that. Like it sounds like God's anything but merciful. Like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here. But listen, God knew just a few chapters later, Syria would come right back again, cause even more harm for God's people This was to protect Israel. Ahab was only thinking about himself and his own legacy, not following God. Here, so you see in verse 34, they make a covenant together, and Ahab lets him go. After everything God has done, Ahab still gives no thought to God. He's only fighting for himself, and if you are getting a bad feeling about where this is going, you should. And this is where the text gets a little bit weird here at the end. There's a parable after these battle scenes. Right after the story, a prophet sort of bizarrely asks another prophet to slap him. He asks to get slapped, you know, strike me. But the guy refuses and then gets eaten by a lion. It's sort of a weird turn. It really escalates quickly there. Uh, the takeaway is if your pastor asks you to slap him, just do it. I don't want to get, yeah, you don't want to get eaten by a lion, I guess. So then the prophet asks another person to hit him, and the guy says, well, sure, I'll do that. And he actually, he hits him, he wounds him. And then the prophet disguises himself as a soldier from the battle, someone who fought and waits for Ahab on the side of the road for him to pass him by. And when he does, he gives him this made-up story in verse 39. He says, I was supposed to guard someone with my life. If I lost him, I was going to have to die in his place. But then I got busy, and I did. I lost him. And Ahab says to him, well, there you go. You have said it. You said your life for his. That's what you should do. You blew it. The judgment for you not doing what you're supposed to do is you have to give your life for his. That was the deal. And then the prophet removes his disguise and says, actually, I'm talking about you. You let Ben-Hadad go. Now it's your life for his. He wasn't, he wasn't your prisoner. He was God's prisoner. You didn't get to choose what to do with him. You should have killed him. That was your job. Now it's your life for his. So Ahab, you know, the whole point of that parable there at the end is to show Ahab, Ahab is caught in his own judgment of himself. And he goes away angry and resentful. Depressed, dejected, the ESV says that he is vexed and sullen. (laughs) But the one thing he is not, as we read it at the end of this story, he is not sorry. He does not repent. He doesn't say, you know what? Yeah, (laughs) I blew it. You know, I I should have done what God told me to do. That's what I know that kings are supposed to do when called into battle against these enemy nations. They're supposed to destroy them, and I didn't do that. God, forgive me. 
He doesn't say that. So here's what the battle reveals about Ahab. While you can never exhaust God's mercy, you can reject it. You can reject God's mercy, even though it will never run out. It will always be there when you need it. You cannot exhaust God's mercy. You can reject it. And Ahab is a tragic example here. He rejects God's offers for mercy over and over and over again. And you actually get the impression that Ahab would prefer to be ruled by anyone else but God. He's more willing to be ruled by Ben-Hadad than he is his own God. He's more willing to serve a foreign king. He's more willing to make a covenant, a binding relationship with a drunk, backstabbing invader than to submit to the God who has pursued him in mercy. You can't outrun or exhaust God's mercy, but you can reject it. And that's what Ahab is doing here. That's what we learn about God and about Ahab. We learn a number of other things in this story. But this morning, you cannot miss God's mercy and Ahab's unwillingness to receive it. What about us? What about you this morning? I mean, we're not much different, are we? The human heart has not changed very much since 1 Kings. We still live without reference to God. Even though we know he's the one, we, we, we sing and pray as though he is the one who is in control, who is a good father, who's calling the shots, who's in charge. Both of the, the wide-angle view of human history, he knows where it's going. He's been in control of it all. And he cares about what's happening tomorrow morning at work or this afternoon as you're changing diapers or whatever you're doing. He cares about all of it. We know that's true. And yet often we, we forget in, as we fight day in and day out in the mundane of life, we forget to live with reference to God. And like Ahab, God is merciful and gracious to pursue us, to pursue me, to fight for my heart and for his fame so that, so that I and others would know that he alone is God. But then I'm back in my own way. I don't know if that's true for you. I think it is. It's a picture of the human heart here, the story bent towards itself without reference to God always. The Bible calls the heart desperately wicked. <laughs> it's easy to sort of point at Ahab here and be like, man, this guy is bad. And, for, and lose sight of the heart, that the fact that the Bible says that our hearts are desperately wicked, deceitful. This is not just Ahab that we're talking about here. You and I, we can make covenants with things, binding relationships with things in our lives that are destroying us. We can come to an agreement with our sin to make a peace treaty with the things that we know are killing us. Enemies, really, that kind of peace treaty with sin should disqualify us, friends. Render us enemies of God. On the other side, and listen, we, you and I have done things that should disqualify us. 
like Ahab, you don't deserve a God who will fight for you. Neither do I. But God is merciful and gracious, always moving towards us. You cannot exhaust his mercy. No matter what you've done, there's always more. It's always there, which is hard to believe. I mean, in in actuality, in our day-to-day lives, it's hard to believe that there is always mercy and grace to be found in our God, and yet it's true. Even when you don't deserve it, God comes to you. You can't exhaust it, but you you can reject it. And when you do, the only thing left is judgment. We see at the end of this story. Because our God's not just merciful, he is also just. Sin must be dealt with. Ahab needs to be dealt with. We want a God like that, friends. There are evil evil figures, past, present, that should be called to account It's obvious to us all we need a God who is just in the end. So if you reject his gracious activity in your life, there is nothing left. No other hope for rescue. There is nothing left but judgment. Because there's nothing you can do. Not on your own. You can't reject God's grace and then just go figure it out by yourself. If you're anything like me, you've tried that. How, how's that gone for you? It's a fight you can't win, and you were never meant to win. And the good news is that you don't have to. You do not have to choose judgment. Because God has already chosen it for you. He has taken it upon himself. There is a place where mercy and justice come together to make the best news in all the world. That God himself has made a way of escape. He has fought the battle that you could never win. At the cross of Christ, God's mercy and his justice meet in a beautiful way. His justice and that the deep debt of sin that we ought to pay has been paid in the perfect life and death of Jesus, his son. His mercy, of course, in the fact that it's finished. There's nothing left to pay. We get life free of charge. And now rooted in his merciful and patient love for us and his justice displayed at the cross, we can fight to live with reference to God, to be obedient. He saved us from judgment and for a life of faith. And how different this story is. And our stories would be if we could simply turn to God in our darkest moments when we are vexed and sullen as Ahab and say, God, forgive me. I can't do this. His mercy is there. You cannot exhaust it. If we would just say, I can't fight you anymore. I need you. If we would see in Jesus, God's son, the victory of the battle behind every battle. The victory over sin and death that we could never win no matter how many treaties we make. But that he is one on our behalf. So friends, this morning, wherever you're trying to make yourself right with God on your own, lay down your arms. Admit admit that God has beaten you. He has surrounded you with his mercy 
And you need to surrender to him. Run to his mercy in Jesus, the one who has been chasing you your whole life. Find your rescue there. Let's pray.